0: Hello, hello, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care and community pharmacy practice. My name is Stuart Haynes, and I'm the host of the iFormerX podcast. And thank you for engaging in this professional development activity and using the latest evidence to take care of patients that you serve. iFormerX is an online community of practice, and any health professional or anyone training to become a health professional is welcome to join. It's free. Just visit iFormerX.org and click on the join or sign in link which is in the upper right of the navigation bar. Today's topic is about a debate that's been ongoing for most of my professional life. We all know that diuretics are a first-line treatment for hypertension and are often used in combination with ACE inhibitors or ARBs or calcium channel blockers but while hydrochlorothiazide or HCTZ is the most frequently prescribed diuretic and included in many combination products, chlorothalidone has been used in several landmark clinical trials and has plenty of outcome data to support its use. Some clinicians prefer chlorothalidone because it has a longer half-life and is a bit more potent in terms of blood pressure lowering. But chlorothalidone can be more challenging to obtain. It costs more and isn't included in many combination products. So while chlorothalidone might enjoy some theoretical advantages, we don't know whether a longer half-life or a greater potency actually translates into lower cardiovascular event rates. If chlorothalidone proved to be more effective than HCTZ, It would be a game changer. And lo and behold, an enterprising group of VA investigators conducted the study I've always wanted to do, and and their paper was published in late 2022 in the New England Journal of Medicine. And joining me to critically review this paper is Dr. Eric McLaughlin and Brian Terrell from the Jerry Hodge School of Pharmacy at Texas Tech University. Eric is professor and chair of the Department of Pharmacy Practice and is based on Texas Tech's Amarillo campus. And as many of our listeners know, Eric has served for the past several years on the American Heart Association's guideline writing groups, and he's played a key role in shaping the standards of care for the management of hypertension. And Brian is a boots-on-the-ground clinical pharmacy educator and a practitioner who teaches about primary care topics to students, and he's based on their Abilene campus. Brian practices at the Department of Defense Dias Air Force Base, where he provides primary care services and see patients with hypertension every day. Well, Eric, it's great to have you back on the iFormerX podcast. And Brian, I'm so pleased that you're here as first time contributor. Welcome.
1: Thanks, Stuart. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you about this really important paper.
0: Thanks, Stuart. Happy to be here. So, Eric, I'd like to start with you. Let's set up the discussion with some background information about the use of thiazide diuretics for the treatment of hypertension and why this debate about whether chlorothalidone should be preferred over other thiazides even exists. Why are diuretics one of the favored first-line treatments of hypertension and why do some clinicians believe that chlorothalidone should be preferred?
1: Yeah, Stuart. It's it's a great question. And I think as you alluded to earlier in the introduction, this debate as far as what thiazide we should be using first line has, has for me likewise been going on my entire professional career. In fact, we've had thiazides now available to treat hypertension really for more than 60 years, even before I was born. Chlorthalidone was the first thiazide that was approved and really was the primary agent used in really some of the large landmark trials that looked at does lowering blood pressure actually decrease cardiovascular events? So, trials such as the SHEP trial, which is the systolic hypertension in the elderly program, they use chlorothalidone in that trial. They also use chlorothalidone in the ALHAT trial, which is the antihypertensive and lipid lowering treatment to prevent heart attack trial. In that trial, compared chlorothalidone versus some of these other, at the time, newer antihypertensive agents, such as the ACE inhibitors and, and calcium channel blockers. And so it's really kind of been a debate which thiazide might be best. Uh, hydrochlorothiazide, which was approved about 17 years after chlorothaladone, has a much shorter half-life. It's, it's about one and a half to two times less potent, and it really doesn't have as much outcomes data as chlorothaladone. Uh, despite that, however, it is the most common thiazide that's used in the U.S. And while indirect comparisons have been made through meta-analyses looking at which agent might be better to reduce cardiovascular outcomes. Really, until now, we didn't have a trial that directly compared the two agents. So, that's kind of hopefully a little bit of background information to set up why this trial is important
0: and, and why it answers a really good clinical question we've had for a number of years. So, Brian, let's, let's take a look at the diuretic comparison study. Unfortunately, the study doesn't have a clever acronym, but the authors refer to it as the diuretic comparison project, so let's go with that. The, the study was officially published in the New England Journal of Medicine in late December 2022, and it's entitled Chlorothalidone versus Hydrochlorothiazide for Hypertension Cardiovascular Events. Now, we provide a link to that paper on our website, but can you give us a brief summary of the study methods and the key results? Sure. The study
2: was a pragmatic, embedded, multicenter, open-label trial that No surprise here, was designed to compare these two diuretics when it comes to non-fatal major cardiovascular disease outcomes and non-cancer deaths in older adults. As you mentioned previously, the study was conducted within the VA healthcare system using a point-of-care approach that leveraged the EHR used across that system. The patients had to be at least 65 and have a systolic blood pressure of at least 120 and already be prescribed hydrochlorothiazide at a dose from 25 to 50 milligrams per day. The investigators were looking at a primary composite outcome of that first occurrence of non-cancer death. And those non-fatal cardiovascular disease events, including MI, stroke, hospitalization for heart failure, or urgent revascularization for unstable angina. Ultimately, about 13,500 patients were identified and randomized to continue their dose of hydrochlorothiazide or switch to the equipotent dose of chlorthalidom. At baseline, most of the patients were prescribed 25 milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide. The mean age in both groups was around 72. Almost all the patients were male, and approximately 75% were white, with about 15% being black. Close to half the study participants had diabetes, and more than 85% were on one or more additional antihypertensives besides that diuretic. Almost half also resided in a rural area. After a median follow-up of a little over two years, the primary outcome occurred in about 10% of participants in each group with no difference detected. Average daily doses of the meds were 12.3 milligrams for chlorothaladone and 23 milligrams for hydrochlorothiazide. There were also no differences between the individual components of the primary outcome, and safety investigations did identify a slightly higher rate of hospitalizations for hypokalemia and a greater incidence of significant hypokalemia in the corthalidone group.
0: Well, Brian, the authors called this a, a pragmatic trial, and I'm wondering if you could explain how a pragmatic trial differs from more traditional randomized clinical trials. And do you have any concerns that this less controlled approach to conducting research introduce confounders that might have impacted the results, or reduced your confidence in the legitimacy of the, of the study outcomes?
2: That's, that's a really great question and something that Eric and I both talked about quite a bit when we were working on this review. So the authors described the trial as being clinically integrated and built on some previous work on point-of-care trial methodology, which has been published on since about 2009. And they tout it as an efficient and relatively inexpensive design that relies on centralized processes for recruitment with site activities embedded in the EHR and centralized outcomes ascertainment. Using that method that it centralized, the study did not have site personnel to identify, recruit, and manage patients or collect data related to outcomes and adverse events. The study had no local investigators or research staff at any of the participating sites. And for this study, all the staff were centrally located either at Boston or the Minneapolis VA Medical Centers. If you were a provider that was participating in this trial, what this would look like is that you would receive a message within the EHR asking you to allow them to contact your patients to enroll in the study. And then if you said yes, the patients received a message or a letter asking for informed consent. And if the patients agreed, it came back to you and you said yes, send it off. It's okay to randomize them. And then after that, the trial activities were considered usual care and there was no clinic visits or data reporting was required. So I think To get back to your question after a little bit further description of what the trial looked like, I think ultimately the big difference comes down to evaluating clinical effectiveness of the two drugs in a real-world setting versus evaluating efficacy, as is typically done in those classic large, randomized, controlled trials. So it's known that efficacy trials can sometimes overestimate the effect of an intervention. So these effectiveness trials can be desirable for informing healthcare decisions, Ultimately, this trial design resulted in broadening the generalizability of the results of this study compared to traditional randomized controlled trials. They recruited patients from 49 states, two territories, and the panels of more than 4,000 primary care providers, the majority of which had never been involved in research studies. The generalizability of a study is enhanced as follow-up mimics real-world conditions, where the primary care provider is entirely in charge of the study medication, unlike most clinical trials where study coordinators enhance compliance of the study drug. So there are, of course, limitations. For this particular trial, specifically, they use the VA population. So while I talked about enhanced generalizability in the general term, because it was limited to the VA, there is some limitations for that population. And then also reliance on the electronic health record and claims data and not primary source verification for their outcomes. There is a possibility that patients will discontinue the treatment or switch to a different diuretic over the course of the follow-up, but this is in line with the goal of the pragmatic trial to evaluate clinical effectiveness. So essentially, I think this is like the next level of intention to treat.
0: So here's the ultimate question. How should this data impact practice? Eric, is this data compelling enough to declare these two agents equal in your mind? And do you think these data influence what future guideline recommendations might be? And looking at some of the subgroup analyses, black patients seem to do better on HCTZ, but patients who had a history of a cardiovascular event, like an MI or a stroke, seem to do better on chlorothalidone. Should these subgroup findings influence our thinking in any way? Great questions. I think
1: my takeaway from the DCP is there there doesn't appear to be a clinically meaningful difference in cardiovascular event reduction between chlorothaladone and HCTZ, keeping in mind the population, so then older patients with hypertension. And, and I think it was a big surprise to a lot of folks in the hypertension field. That said, though, there are some things to consider. As you mentioned, there was a difference in, in maybe some subgroup analyses, such as patients with a history of MI or stroke, that did favor chlorothaladone, which was a statistically significant reduction. There was a trend in favor of hydrochlorothiazide in in black patients, though it wasn't statistically significant. It was close. Also, while hypokalemia was higher with chlorothalidone, patients in that group actually had more frequent lab testing. So I wonder if that could be a reason for that finding. So for folks really concerned about hypokalemia and using chlorothaladone, that may be not a reason to be too overly concerned. I think some other considerations to think about would also be perhaps the chlorothalidone was maybe too low. The major outcomes trials that I mentioned earlier really used a 25 milligram dose of chlorothalidone, And in this trial, it was half that. I think the average dose was 12.3 milligrams. And keep in mind also that almost everybody, I think 94, 95% of patients at baseline were on hydrochlorothiazide. So we really don't know what would have happened if these were patients newly initiated on thiazide and would be find the same difference. I think in my view and how to view this study, I think chlorothaladone still obviously has a role in hypertension management, particularly in patients who may have resistant hypertension where where it is a more preferred agent and in folks with advanced kidney disease based on results of the CLIC trial, which was the chlorothaladone for hypertension and advanced chronic kidney disease, which did show uh, a good benefit with chlorothaladone. I think what is probably the most important thing in my mind to consider is maybe not so much what thiazide you use to, to blood pressure goal, but frankly, to get to goal. If you consider that the baseline systolic blood pressure in this trial was 139 and the final was 136, that tells me that most patients fail to actually get their treatment intensified or clinical inertia, perhaps. In considering the hydrochlorothiazide, is the thiazide that is most frequently found in most of the fixed-dose combination and the fact that most patients are going to need more than one agent anyway to get blood pressure goals. I think simplicity of drug regimen, improving adherence is probably more likely to have a greater impact on overall hypertension and cardiovascular events than necessarily which thiazide, whether it be HCTZ or clophaledone that we use.
0: Well, Brian, Eric, I'm so pleased that you agreed to write this commentary and participate in today's podcast. Now, while HCTZ and chlorthaldone seem to produce similar outcomes when used in, well, typical doses, I'm not sure this study fully addresses the question as to whether chlorthaldone might be better in some patients, particularly those who have not achieved their blood pressure goal while taking HCTZ, and perhaps its additional potency along half-light might be beneficial in some patient populations. Nonetheless, it's hard to argue for the superiority of clorthalidone based on these data, but tell us what you think. Are you a die-hard fan, or do you think all of this is much ado about nothing? You can leave a comment about the commentary and the podcast by visiting iformerex.org, Remember, only members of iFormerX can leave comments and use the interactive features on our website. So if you're not already a member, please sign up today. And if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, you can earn recertification and continuing education credit for listening to this podcast and reading the commentary. Be sure to check out the Literature Evaluation and Evidence-Based Practice Series produced by the American Pharmacists Association. And you can learn more by clicking on the link at the bottom of the commentary on our website. And lastly, I'd like to thank all of the students who've signed up to become iFormRx members over the years. I have had students who approach me at national pharmacy meetings and tell me how much they learn from iFormerX and how it's increased their interest in ambulatory care as a, a career path. I believe students are among our best ambassadors, introducing their peers and their preceptors to iFormerX and using iFormerX content to stay current on the latest evidence. We hope iFormerX will continue to be a valuable resource to you if you're a student throughout your career. And if you're a student and would like to get more involved in iFormerX, just send me an email at iFormerX at gmail.com. I'm certain we can find ways to use your time and talent. Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off.